Good morning, Boker Tov, everyone. Thank you so much for coming back. It's great to see you in person. Our Parsha perspectives for today, we have the privilege of learning Parsha's Todos, the Art Scroll Stone Chumash, page 124. As always, we want to begin with gratitude, an attitude of gratitude, and thank our generous sponsors for this season, for this year. Becky and Avi Katz, our dear friends in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, Leila Nishmas, David Ben Menachem Manish. This morning's shir is also sponsored in honor of the Yurtzeit of Tfi'ari Ben Meir, Harry Prince, by his children, recent Ephraim Prince of Teaneck, New Jersey, and his many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. What a very beautiful tribute. What a uh, wonderful, wonderful way to honor someone. Thank you very much. If you'd like to sponsor a future shir, we made it simple and easy. Go on brsonline.org slash sponsor, brsonline.org slash sponsor, and you could sponsor an honor in memory of someone and promote a lot of Talmud Torah. We would be deeply and forever appreciative. Okay, page 124 in the Art Scroll Stone. Chumash Parshas told us. It's great to see many more people coming back. We're going to pack the place like we used to. The energy of Talmud Torah in person, live. The Parsha coming alive. Our coming alive. It's really great to be here. I appreciate it very much. Eila told us Yitzchak ben Avram. Avram alidus Yitzchak. This is the story. These are the offspring. This is the progeny of Yitzchak, the son of Avram. Avram begot. It's the one time in your entire life that you use the word begot. Avram begot, which is another way of saying Avram is the father of Yitzchak. The redundancy we will not explore today. We've discussed in the past. Why does the Torah have to present this? this Yitzchak, the son of Avram. Avram is the father of Yitzchak. Vahi Yitzchak ben Arba'im Shana. See how fast we're moving today? We're going right to the second Pesach. And Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka, the daughter of Besul, who was from Aram, the Arami, from Padan Aram, who was the sister of Lavan, to, for himself, Leisha, as a wife. As a wife. Rivka is identified as Rivka Bas Besul. And Rashi jumps in and Rashi tells us, Every part of this biographical sketch, every part of Rivka's resume we already know. Did we not meet her in last week's parsha? Did Eliezer not painstakingly go and entertain the entire shidduch process to explore her resume, to call her references? He didn't do any of that narish guide. He went to the well, he saw her duchesed, he said she's the one. It's time that we go back to the way it was and simplify the process. I think we'll see a lot better results. Okay, in any case, so Eliezer painstakingly found Rivka for Yitzchak. And we know from last week's parsha, Rivka is the daughter of Besuel. She is the sister of Lavan. She's from Padan Aram. Says Rashi, we have her resume. Picture, no picture, we have her resume. We know everything about her. Why does the Torah need to repeat what we already know? Ella, says Rashi, lahaget shivcha shaisa bas rasha v'achaz rasha umekoma anshe rasha v'lolamda mimaseim. Says Rashi, you know Why? The redundancy, the repetition is all in order to praise Rivka, in order to speak the beauty, the glory of Rivka. Why? Because here you have Rivka. She grew up in the home of a low life. She grew up in the home of a dishonest, corrupt, terrible person. She had a brother. Maybe at least her brother would elevate. Maybe her brother at least was in inspiration. No. Her brother walked in her father's footsteps. He was a low life. He was corrupt. She lived in a place, maybe at least there was NCSY, maybe at least there was a Midrashah, maybe at least there was 
Ability for her to tap into others? No. She came from a place that was filled with Rishayim. So Rashi says, She didn't learn from any of them. Rivka was the product not of her father and not of her brother and not of her community. She nevertheless emerged a righteous person. She discovered the right path. And the Torah wants to emphasize that. And so here the Torah tells us she was extraordinary. She was very, very special. So this wonderful new sefer I've been drawing from the last uh, few months, L'Sitcha Elyon, which is a collection of Bali Musar on the Parsha. Um, and he quotes the following from Rav Zaydel Epstein, the Mashkiach of Yeshiva's Torah Or. Could you imagine? This is the greatest thing that you could say about her. You're speaking at Rivka's bat mitzvah, bas mitzvah. You're speaking at Rivka's Shabbos kala, you're at her Sheva brachos. And you want to praise the kala. So what do you, this would be kind of awkward, I guess, to give this praise of the kala, assuming her father and brother are there and it's in her community. But whatever, you want to praise the kala. So what are you going to say about her? I want you to know her father's terrible, her brother's terrible. She comes from a terrible community. But look at what, look at what a tzaddikah she is. She's so, so righteous nonetheless. That's the best thing you can say. Now, why in particular is that a compelling question? Because last week the Torah itself testified about Rivka's greatness. And the Torah didn't feel it necessary to say, do you know what made Rivka great? She wasn't like her father, she wasn't like her brother, she wasn't like her community. Torah said, you know what made her great? She had beautiful eyes, we discussed on Shabbos. Beautiful eyes. The Gemara, beginning of Taina says, any kala who has beautiful eyes, you don't have to explore, you don't have to examine, don't call references, don't check resume, nothing else has to check out. If she has beautiful eyes, you're good to go. That's it? Beautiful eyes? So the Kliyakar explains, and others, very beautifully. Beautiful eyes doesn't mean that she has beautiful eyes ophthalmologically. It means she has a beautiful outlook, an ayin tov. She sees positively, she sees the good, she seeks the good. So the Torah tells us, tovas barehi, she was beautiful. Not beautiful outside only. She was beautiful to us, Mares is the Kliyakar, inside. She didn't only have beautiful eyes, she had a beautiful outlook, a beautiful perspective. She saw the good, that which to be grateful for. She didn't complain, she wasn't negative. She saw the positive. She was generous and selfless and magnanimous. She was a wonderful person. The Torah had no shortage of ways to praise Rivka. So last week, we had pick your choice of how to praise Rivka. And this week, the best thing we could say about her is she wasn't a lowlife like her father, her brother, or her community. So why do we need to take up space to repeat just to tell me something which isn't even the most impressive part about her? Wouldn't it have been enough to recall? Wouldn't it enough to remember? When Yitzchak marries her, what does he do? He brings her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. And Rashi there writes, so Yitzchak wanted to know, does she check out? The things that my righteous mother merited, that disappeared with her demise, do they return with Rivka? Does Rivka fill the shoes of my mother? Is she righteous like her? As long as Sarah was alive, the candle was lit all week long. And the challah had a special taste. Not that she had a recipe, but she imbued it, she endowed it. There's something intangible that you infuse within to what you make that's not doesn't appear in a recipe in a cookbook. Anan kosher ala oil. There was a cloud over the tent. Umishemesa pasku. And when she died, sorry, imenu. That was it. Those three things stopped. They ceased. They were gone. Ukshabas rivka chazru. And when rivka came, they returned. Now we're talking. Now that's praise. Now that's something nice that you can say. Now that's a ringing endorsement. She wasn't like her low life father, low life brother, low life community. That's what the Torah, the second parsha that we're talking about, rivka chooses to invoke. So it says Reb Zaydel Epstein. 
This is in fact the greatest of all the praises you can give. Why? Because there is a natural instinct and impulse that all of us have. God designed us where we are jealous, we're envious, we naturally compete or compare, we naturally imitate the people around us. Shlomo Melech says in Kohelas, I saw all of life, and all of life is people trying to fit in. All of life is trying to compete. Do we not see the same thing in the world around us? Keeping up with the Joneses, the Schwartzes, they say the Goldbergs, but I don't like that. I say the Schwartzes. Keeping up with, I have to have the car, and I have to have the fashionable clothing, I have to make a simcha on par, I have to look, I have to speak, I have to act, I have to be. We're all competing, we're all imitating, we're all comparing to one another. That's life. It causes people to want to appear, to dress, to look, to listen, to speak, to be copies of one another, poor imitations of one another. So why did God create us with that instinct? Why did God give us that drive to compete and compare ourselves to others? Rare is the person, I don't know about you, when I meet such a person, I'm always very drawn to them, I'm always very taken to them. The people who have the self-confidence to say, I'm my own person, I, I, I want people to be happy with me, I want to be Mu'urav and Mabrios, but I don't really care, I don't need to keep up, I don't need to compare, I don't need to compete, I don't need to be just like everybody else. As long as I look in the mirror, I'm happy with myself, I think Hashem is happy with me, Ganuk, that's good enough for me. I'm always very impressed with such people. It's rare, it's very unusual. Most of us, we care. Most of us are concerned. Most of us are aware and looking around at what people think of us. So why would Hashem create us with that instinct or impulse? Why would He design us in that way, He wonders. So He says, you know why? Because the notion of comparison and competitiveness is not only true in the negative. It doesn't just bring us down to do the wrong things. It also raises us and elevates us to do the right thing. Maybe some of you weren't going to come to the Pasha class this morning. But one of your friends texted or spoke to you last night or this morning and said, No, are you going? Did you hear it's back in person? And they even give out water bottles. And they even have granola bars and coffee. Are you coming? So you weren't going to come. You were going to stay home. You were going to watch online or not watch at all. And what drove you to come? Well, they already asked me and they're going. And how will it look? I want to seem like I also care about the Parsha. How will my children or grandchildren get married if I don't look like I care about the Parsha? So... It could be for the wrong reason, but that notion of comparing and competing also. We have a Lashon of the Gemara, We know in scholarship, competitiveness in scholarship, it breeds and it yields breakthrough. Person wants to publish, person wants to compete, a Chavrusa wants to outshine. So they chaz, they learn, they review over and over, they have chidushim. However, this competitiveness can also undermine could be brought down. Someone says, did you watch, did you binge watch that new series? Did you hear the latest gossip or slander that I have about somebody? It could also bring us down. Even a person who's very righteous and virtuous, but in the effort to fit in, to compete, to compare, can be brought down. And he goes on many examples, but I want to get to more. So what's his point? Why does the Torah here tell us this is the greatness of Rivka Imenu, of Rivka Imenu? So how do you know about a person when their righteousness is true, it's genuine, it's authentic, it's lasting? How do you know? Maybe they're just doing it to compete. 
Maybe they're struggling to fit in. Maybe they learn the dafyomi when they're in town because they want to be known as a person who goes to the dafyomi when you're looking around. But when they're elsewhere, when they're on the business trip or where they live elsewhere, ah, they don't bother with the dafyomi because nobody's looking. How do you know? How do you know if the length of the Shemona Esrei is because the person is really mindful of what they're saying? Or maybe they want to have the longest Shemona Esrei in the shul. They're already competing for next year's Maftayona. How do you know? How do you know? So, says Rav Epstein, you know how you know? Because when they're around the wrong influence, are they still righteous and virtuous? Are they brought down? The greatest testament, the greatest testimony we could say about someone is that they're righteous and virtuous even when they're among those who aren't that they didn't blend in and they didn't compromise and they didn't dilute their righteousness, that they didn't try to just fit in and give up on who they were. So yeah, there's so many shvachim, there's so much praise that we could offer about Rivka, so many wonderful things we can say and we did say in last week's Parsha. And yet, when we identify her here in the beginning of this next story, she's Rivka Bas Pesuo, and she's the sister of Lavan, and she comes from Padana, she comes from a terrible community, and she grew up with terrible influences with siblings, and her father was no good and pressured her to be a bad person. And with that all, despite the natural inclination we all have to fit in, despite being conditioned by the nurture around us, Rivka rose above it. She transcended it. Shivcha Torah's Rivka Bamailazu, Shilohushpam Imeshpachta, Umisvivasa, Vinishra Bitsitkosum Idosa Tovos. She was able to be who she was even above it. He doesn't write this, but I would humbly suggest maybe in that way she even surpassed, she even surpassed uh, in that way her Shver, her father in law. For Avram to become who he was meant to be, Lech Lecha, go discover who you're meant to be. What did he need to do? Me Artsachami Moladit Chami Besavicha. This negative influence, you'll never discover the real you. You'll never be the best version of yourself if you are surrounded by people who bring you down. If you're surrounded by a community and a family who corrupt you, who compromise you, who pressure you to not be your best. So lech, you need to go out. Lecha, if you're going to be the best you, if you're going to discover who you really are, you have to rise above, you have to transcend. Rivka lives in her family, with her brother, with her father, in her community, and now we know how righteous she really is. She's able to fulfill Lech Lecha. She discovers who she is. She lives her best self, not by escaping, not by running away, but even while being immersed in and among her family. Wow, that's Rivka. Now that's a Shevach. That surpasses even the praise in last week's passion. So next time you have to speak at a Sheva Brachas and you think of the praise you want to say, you say, even though the fathers are lowlife and the brothers are lowlife and the community are lowlifes, I'm just giving you the best praise. Khalila, don't ever say that. <laughs> don't try it at home. I'm just joking. But you see, this was the best praise. This was the most compelling praise that we could offer about Rivka, about Rivka Imeni. Says the Heliga Kotzker, I love to use the new Sfarim I got, mostly to just encourage you to get me Sfarim, because I'll use them in the parasha class, I'm just joking. But when you get new svarim, it's hashkacha, that there's something in that sefer that you meant to share in the parsha. So I've also been sharing this Emez Ve'emunah, this collection of the teachings of the Kotzker Rebbe, of Menachem Mendel of Kotzk, the Heliga Kotzker. So the Kotzker says the following. We know that Yitzchak and Rivka are barren. Let's keep going. Perichav hey, Pasuk Chafal. Next Pasuk, already up to the third Pasuk, and we're only 15 minutes in. Unbelievable. They're barren, they struggle, they suffer with infertility. Among, if not the most painful thing, a couple or a person could bear. We can't imagine, and we have to all be so sensitive. I preach and I teach and I try to practice all the time because if you've ever sat 
next to somebody who's in a puddle of tears with the unrealized dream of having children, a continuity, a future, then it has to change you. We have to be so much more careful about how we speak and what we take for granted and what we assume. I, I feel very strongly that we do a disservice to our children. Maybe their senior year in high school or yeshiva and seminary or certainly by their chassan and kala classes, we should mention that a third of pregnancies end in miscarriage in the first trimester. One third of pregnancies end in miscarriage in the first trimester. That it's not so simple. How do children grow up? They grow up in their shul and they read in the newsletter and they hear the announcement of Friday night, Mazel Tov, another Shalom Zachar, another baby, we're naming another girl. So they grow up and they assume that, first of all, with Shiduchim, maybe they should be told nothing so simple. But they just assume, the day I choose, I'm ready to get married. A month later, I'll be engaged. And then when we choose, we're ready to have a baby. Nine months later, we'll have a baby. Life is not so simple and we should never take it for granted and we should warn so that we strengthen even before it happens. So our great Avos and Imos were barren. The most righteous are the ones that Hashem puts in that position because He longs for and loves their davening. And there is no more sincere tefillah in the world than the tefillah of the person who themselves is desperate. When Rav Druk was here for Shabbos a couple of weeks ago, the Rav Druk that we quote all the time was here for Shabbos, he spoke to Charles Shittas and he said a vort we had said in the Pasha clip. Copies us all the time. He said, of, I'm just joking, it's the opposite. We use this Ishtamid all the time. So he said, why was Lot answered and Avram wasn't? Because with Lot, his life was on the line. The more desperate and personal it is to you, the more authentic that tefillah. There is no more authentic tefillah than a person who wants to have children. So Yitzchak davens to Hashem, we spoke about this last year, two years ago. Listen to all the old Parsha Shirim. There's good stuff in there too. It's not mine. It's all the Torah I'm sharing from others. What does it mean, Yitzchak daven lenochach? On behalf of his wife. What, he was good? He's such a tough guy. Such a man. Ah, it doesn't bother me. I'm not crying. I'm not struggling with infertility. It's for her. She said, I want to make her happy. What does it mean, lenochach? Lenochach ishto. Ki akarahi. She was barren. She was infertile. Vayeter lo Hashem v'atar rivka ishto. And it worked. Zogter Rashi. Vayeter lo v'lo la. Hashem answered him and not her. Why did Hashem answer him and not her? What does it mean Hashem answered Yitzchak, not Rivka? She'en Adom, Tzvila Tzadik ben Tzadik, Tzvila Tzadik ben Rasha. So Rashi tells us, L'fichach lo v'lo la, Rashi tells us Hashem was answering Yitzchak, not Rivka, because even though Rivka davened so sincerely, such earnestly, nevertheless, you can't compare the prayer of the righteous, the child of a righteous, compared to the child, the prayer of the righteous, the child of a wicked. So we spoke about last week or two years ago, last year or two years ago, I would have thought it would be the opposite. Didn't we just say a moment ago that the greatest praise of Rivka is that she grew up in that environment and yet she emerged a Rivka? If that's the greatest praise we could say about her, shouldn't her merit be greater than Yitzchak? Big deal, Yitzchak. You grew up in the home of Avram. So you turned out a Yitzchak? Big deal. You had the greatest Rebbe. You had the greatest role model. You had the greatest parents in the world. So you turned out a Yitzchak? Not impressing me. Rivka, you grew up with you grew up with love and you became a Rivka. Psh, it's unbelievable. So shouldn't it have been the opposite? Shouldn't Hashem have been more predisposed to listen to the prayer of Rivka over Yitzchak? So we shared last year one insight. Should I repeat it or you all remember it from last year? That's what I thought. So we shared last year the insight, somewhat counterintuitively, that you know what, when you grow up among Rishayim, and you're so turned off and you're so disturbed and you're so bothered by that corruption, by that wickedness, by that evil, you say, I want no part of that. I'm going to be a good person. But you grow up in the home of an Avram and you say to yourself, how in the world can I measure up? I can't compare. I can't compete. I'll never be an Avram. So you know what? 
I'm not going to try. Because if I try and I fail, that'll be worse than if I never try. Many Gedolei Yisrael have children who struggle, who go off the derech, in fact. Many Rabbanim, many Rashi Yeshiva, because those children say, if my parent has certain achievement or accomplishment or even fame, deservedly so, how will I compete? How can I compare? How will I ever measure up? So I'm not going to bother. I'm not going to bother. Yitzchak never used that cop-out. He never used that escape, that excuse. He never failed to try because he was afraid of failure. So that's even greater. To be a Yitzchak in the home of an Avram, where you might have said, I'm not going to bother. How could I compete? That was even better. Good. Now we're up to the Kotzker. That was last year. I don't understand, says the Kotzker. It's a Gavaldik Kotzker. We've all learned this Rashi a thousand times. But we didn't stop to ask the question the Kotzker asks. Kotzker says, I don't understand. Yitzchak and Rivka, they both daven. They're barren. They want a child. They're desperate. They both daven. Pasuk tells us who's answered? Yitzchak. Because Yitzchak's more righteous. Says the Kotzker, no. They're both answered. They both wanted a child. They got a child. What do you mean just Yitzchak? Was, it wasn't like Yitzchak's davening, I'm davening, 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 that uh, the Yankees win the World Series. And she's davening, 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 that she gets a new diamond bracelet. And Hashem answered, she got a new diamond bracelet, and the Yankees were knocked out of the playoffs. Hashem answered her, not him, or him, and not her. They weren't davening for two conflicting things. They weren't davening for opposite things. They're davening, their interests were aligned. They're both davening for a child. And they have a child. So they're both answered. So how could the Torah tells us, tell us that he was answered, not her, and we could learn from that that Hashem is more predisposed to answer the tefillah of the righteous, the child of the righteous, than the righteous, the child of the wicked. They were both answered. Good question? Yeah, it's a good, hello, it's a good question. It's a good, did any of you ever think of it? None of you ever think of it. None of you thought of it. I'm going with the cuts go over you any day. No offense. Here's the deal. This is going to change your understanding of Pasha's told us. So listen carefully. Both of them knew that she was going to be pregnant with twins. And both of them knew one of the twins would be righteous and the other wicked. So their interests were aligned that they wanted a child or children. But here's where their interest went separate ways. You ready? Listen carefully. Yitzchak bikesh al-tzadik Yitzchak said, look, no mediocrity. I don't want mediocrity. I wasn't raised on mediocrity, and I don't want mediocrity. So I'd rather have a tzaddik gamur. I want one who's going to be complete tzaddik, even if it means the other will be a Russian gamur. They'll both be excellent at what they do. One will be excellent in being righteous, and the other will be the most phenomenal thief. They'll be the most excellent Russia in the world. But excellence! It's who we are, it's what we stand for. No mediocrity, no compromise. Masha'en came Rivka. Rivka says, Yitzchak, honey, dear, I don't know what she called them. What are you, crazy? Rivka said, you know what? I'll take mediocrity in Sidkus. If it means there'll be a mediocre Russia. I'll take them both being mediocre over having a completely excellent, wicked Russia. And that's what the Torah was telling us. Yitzchak was answered, not Rivka. Why? Because there was a Yitzchak who was a Tzadik Gamor. There was a Yaakov who was a Tzadik Gamor. And there was an Esav who was a Russian Gamor. So you see the Torah answered Yitzchak, didn't answer Rivka. It changes your whole understanding of Pasha's told us. It changes the whole beginning of the Pasha. 
Kotzka was worth you waking up and driving down from wherever you came from, aside from the granola bar and the water bottle and the coffee. It was worth it for this Kotzka. Changes everything. That's how the Torah knew their interests were aligned partially, but at some point their interests split. And when they split, Hashem answered Yitzchak over Rivka. Now who was right? It's an interesting question. If you were given that choice, I know what you're going to say. My children, they're just tzaddikim gemurim. They're perfect. They're amazing. They're unbelievable. They're perfect. But if you were given that choice, you had twins. They would both be excellent, although one wouldn't be excellent in the way you want. Or they'll both be mediocre. So at least, even though they won't be mediocre in the way, excellent in the way you want, but at least they'll also not be excellent in the way you don't want. Which would, would you side with Rivka or Esav? It's an interesting question. It's an interesting question. Mediocrity. Mediocrity. Okay, moving right along. So Rivka is answered. Rivka's answered. She conceives, not one. Many people struggle with infertility due to treatments today, ultimately. They have multiples. She has multiples. She says, why me? What was me? Why me? What was she saying, what was me and why me? She said, why me? So she went to go speak to Hashem. There's a lot of questions to ask on this. First of all, where did she go to speak to Hashem? Rashi tells us. Where did she go? Yeshiva Shem Be'ever. She went to the nearby, what do you mean? You need to know what to do. You go find the nearby Rosh Hashiva. That's Torah. Here's the question. She lived with a Rosh Hashiva. She was married to a Rosh Hashiva. She's the Rebbitzin of the Gadol Ador. She went to go visit someone else in the Moetz's Gadol Torah. She went to a different Rosh Hashiva. She went to a different rabbi. Why is she going to the Yeshiva Shem Ever? She's married to Yitzchak. Say, Yitzchak, honey, something's going on in here. I'm uncomfortable. But Telech Ledros Hashem, you want to know what Hashem has to say? Go to your husband. Why didn't she go to Yitzchak? Is an interesting question. And, so Hashem counseled her. Oh, Rivka, don't be upset. You feel this conflict, Rashi tells us. She walked by the base Medrash, kicking to get out. She walked by the base of Odazar, the house of idolatry, kicking to get out. So she was very disturbed, very upset, understandably so. So Hashem answered her, no, 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 don't be upset. You're pregnant with twins. It's two nations. And they're going to go very different directions. And don't worry, the older one's going to serve the younger ones. Don't worry. And what happens next? How does Rivka react? What does the Torah say? Nothing. <laughs> it doesn't tell us how she reacts. In fact, it leads us to believe that she's satisfied. That explanation appeased her. She's comforted. She's so distraught. I go by the base Medrash. I go by the base of Odezara. Who is this kid? Oh, it's two nations. You're going to have a good Russia. You're going to have a good Saudi. Oh, she, oh, that's the, oh, now I'm good to go. I don't understand. I don't understand. So the Oiv Yisrael, the Aptarov, the Oiv Yisrael, the Avni Yeshua Heshel, the Aptarov, say for Oiv Yisrael, is how can you find the mitzvah of Avas Yisrael in every parsha? Every single parsha has Avas Yisrael. The theme, the essence, the core of a Jew is to love other Jews. Love other Jews. Love all Jews. Love Jews. This past Sunday night, I was invited to a live podcast 
that went on for two hours. It was a fantastic conversation. So it's hosted by uh, not a community in Boca. It's hosted by people in Lakewood, by another community. So the host told me beforehand that several people had called to complain I was being hosted. I was on. They had a long list of top ten reasons. I'm a Russia. Fine. They were very interesting. I'll share them with you at one point. We could put them to a vote, see if you agree in the top ten. But one of them is that I recently posted a picture that I had spent time with a local reform rabbi. With my arm around him, I said, we're two brothers. I didn't endorse that hashkafa, that denomination, that belief, that lifestyle. I said, we're two Jewish brothers, Avas Yisrael. Avas Yisrael makes me a Russia. I want to be a Russia gamur. Avas Yisrael, to love a fellow Jew, to love all Jews. So the Oiv Yisrael, the after of Avram Yeshua Heshel. He says, So first of all, why is she saying Lama Zanochi? A woman struggles for, with infertility for a long time. She's finally pregnant and she throws up a lot. You'll excuse me, but she throws up a lot. It happens. Pregnancy comes with pain. Baruch Hashem, if you've been near people who've been pregnant, you are to hear a lot about the discomfort and the pain that they're in. There's nausea, there's kicking, there's backaches, there's all kinds of other problems that arise. Blood flow, there's all kinds of problems, blood clot, there's all kinds of problems. You'd think this woman struggled with infertility. She cried her heart out. She davened her heart out. She's pregnant. Now she's throwing up. She's, Lama Zanochi, why me, God? Why you, guys, why you? Isn't this what you daven for? What is she crying and kvetching about Lama Zanochi? So the way we saw the Abderav says, kvetching, crying? You're talking about Rachel, uh, Rivka Imenu. You're talking about the Imaus. They don't kvetch, they don't cry for no reason. They're not ingrates that she's finally pregnant. So what is she crying about? Why is she crying? I want to read to you the whole thing. Ay. It's already halfway through. Rashi says, She says, Why did I bother davening and becoming pregnant only to be in this much pain? She, she wasn't willing to withstand the discomfort and the pain of pregnancy in order to be able to have children? I'm talking about a tzaddikis here. What's going on? She already heard about, she, she, she hung out with the women. She went to the woman's shir. She did chesed. She was on the woman's chavar kadish. She's a tzaddikis. She heard from pregnant women that it's painful. She knew the discomfort. This is such a surprise. Lama zahanochi. She nevertheless longed for and wanted and hoped and davened for children, knowing the pain it came with. And the answer is, you're pregnant with twins. So she says, I'm so nauseous. I have such a pain in my side. My rib cage feels like it's about to explode. My back is killing me. You have twins. Ooh, I have twins? Okay, fine. I can endure the, the nausea and the back pain and the broken ribs. How does that appease her? How does that make her happy? Did any of these questions ever bother any of you? Have anyone ever studied the Parsha before? Has anyone ever listened to the Parsha before? I'm just joking. I'm not in a very cynical mood this morning. My point is you learn the Parsha when we wonder, how come I have to read the same Parsha every year? I heard it already since I'm five years old. What do I have to still read the same Parsha? Because you're going to... Every year you read the Parsha. It's a new you every year by the time you read the Parsha. It's a new you, it's a new Parsha. It's a new world we're living in, it's a new Parsha. It's the insights that we're going to extract and take out. It's Parsha perspectives for today. So says the Abder of answering all these questions. 
She had an unusual pain. She had never heard about this kind of pain. She had such a discomfort. No one she ever knew had such a discomfort. She knew that if this was causing her such pain, this, this young little child inside her, this guy was going to be special. Such a Russia never existed before. This tumult happening inside her, this was the result of this was a wickedness and an evil. This guy inside her was bad news. From, from the top to bottom, this guy was going to be up to no good. So here she is lying in bed at night, and she's saying to herself, I don't understand. I waited so long. I davened so hard, only to give birth to such a Russia Marusha. Hashem, I could tell by the pregnancy I'm having that this kid inside me is not going to grow up to be the God Lador. I could tell that the kid inside me, by the pain and discomfort he's causing me, is a no good Nick. So that's why I waited so long, and that's why I davened so hard. What did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? So what did she conclude? What did she conclude? She's lying in bed all night. She can't sleep for nine months. She says, this little Russia that's growing inside me. Why? Why me? What did I do wrong? I've tried to be righteous. I tried to be good. I was on the Hever Kaddisha and the Chesed committee, and I went to the Wid Midrash, and I, I did everything right. Why me? So what did she conclude? No. She said, it must be something about my DNA. It's not me. I've, lived, I've tried to live a righteous life. Elamai, what must it be? It's my DNA. It's the people before me. She bats besul, pracha achia lovan, mafur son berushaso. My father, my brother, ah. Verov bonim hocham achar achia aim. The Gemara Baba Basud of Kufyud tells us that in fact the only reference for a shidduch should be tell me about her mother's brother. Because people take after the mother's brother. Something about the hairline too, but people take after the mother's brother. So she says, you know, this kid must have the genetics, the physical and spiritual genetics of my brother, of my father. Me, I've tried to live a righteous life. I'm not deserving of this Russia. So why, how could it be that I'm growing this terrible Russia inside me? It must be because, it must be because my father and my brother. Chazal tell us that the father, the mother, each contribute different genetics. So she says, I don't understand. Why is this kid taking exclusively after my side of the family? Okay, so the DNA of my father and my brother is pretty miserable. But the DNF of, DNA of my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, you don't get more righteous than that. So I understand the negative contribution genetically from my side of the family. What about, what about from his side of the family? What about from his side of the family? So, Hevina migodal tzara she'a'ubar muchlat berasha betachas arasha she'in kamahu. She understood from all of her pain. V'tomar imkenu kamosha ani dan ba'atzmi she'ubar ye arasha mitzad b'chines mishpachti halo akopona me'aroi she'yegaw gamke midos yashos mitzad aviv ha'tzadek. So lama zeh anochi. She turns to Hashem and she says, why is this child Anochi? Why is this baby only taking after me? Yeah, I come from Lavan, I come from Basul. But Yitzchak also contributed DNA to this child, and he comes from Avram and Sarah. So Lama Zeh Anochi. Why is the child only taking after me? 
שלכולו אנוכי כמו בחינוסי מחצבי, ולא יהיה בו שום מידה טוב ויש מצד אביו. ולזה, ותלך לדרוס להשם. ויאמר השם לא שני גויים מבדנך, אחד יהיה בתמימוס צדקוס, והבייז יהיה ראשי גמור. Don't worry, one's taken after your husband, and one's taken after your side of the family. And that's why she's appeased, and that's why she's comforted. And with this, explains the Ovi Yisrael, the Aptarav, is what really bothered her. And this is why she was appeased by the answer that she, that she received. Okay. Tefer Shlomo gives an answer from Radomsk, but we don't have time. Let's keep going. Ish Yodei Tzayed. Perech Afei Pasach Avzayin. These little kindalach are born, and now they emerge. They grow, and we know that when they grow, they differentiate. They become distinct. They're each their own person. Esav is characterized as a hunter, a man of the field. Yaakov is characterized as Tam, Yoshev Ho'olim. So they're each distinguished by who they are. Back to our L'Sitcha Elyon. Back to our collection of Musr insights. So, we usually think of the difference between Yaakov and Esav is the difference between a tzaddik and a rasha. That's the narrative that we have of this parsha. Wake any Jewish child in the middle of the night, Yaakov is the tzaddik and Esav is the rasha. Yaakov is the hero and Esav is the villain. They represent categorically different. They're archetypes. One is the archetype of a hero and one the archetype of a villain. I just wanted an excuse to use the fancy word archetype. However, the Balei Musa say, not so pashat, not so simple, not so quick. Pasuk says, Vayev Yitzchak is Esav. Yitzchak loved Esav. And if Esav is the model, is the archetype of a wicked person, how could Yitzchak? Yitzchak, the progeny of Avram. Yitzchak, the spiritual heir of Avram. How could Yitzchak go so wrong? If it's so obvious to all of us that Esav is so wicked, how could Yitzchak go so wrong by embracing him? So says Rabbi Yerucham, the great Mashkiach, Says Rav Yerucham in his Das Torah, Chalila lanu lachshav shayazeb betaus, ela shayubamailos ramoshayabamalaavoso. There were redeemable and lovable things about Esav. Esav was not this categorically wicked, evil, reject him person. Now, this is the parsha when you want to talk about chinuch banim. We want to talk about how we raise our children. Turn to here. This is not me, but Rav Hirsch and others say that Yitzchak and Rivka made a mistake trying to raise their children exactly the same. They squeezed them into the same box. They told them to both sit. Yaakov had zitzvah. It was easy for him to sit and learn. Esav was running all over, had a lot of passion, had a lot of energy. And yet you said to him, sit still. What do you do? You turned him into an Esav. You tried to stifle. You tried to suffocate. You tried to mold. You tried to compare. You tried to make him live different than who he was. That's why we see. Who else? I don't remember. Did I share this last week? Who else is described in Tanakh as Admoni? Esav is Admoni in our parsha. Who else is Admoni? David HaMelech is Admoni. David HaMelech shared character traits with Esav. Not wickedness. He too was filled with passion, energy, enthusiasm, dynamism. David HaMelech challenged it into being the greatest poet in history. He challenged it into being among the greatest warriors in history. David HaMelech challenged it, challenged it into being the great king of history. But Esav was being stifled became an Esav. So it may be convenient and comfortable for us to look at children, our own or others, and say, that's the tzaddik, and this little one's the rasha. This is the good boy, and that's the, this is the good girl, and that's the bad girl. It's not so simple. Children are complicated, and they're nuanced, and they have redeemable qualities and beautiful virtues, also while they have liabilities. But what do we see? Do we only see in them the liability? Do we judge them on the surface? 
Or do we see that which is redeemable, that which is deep? And says Rav Yerucham, that was the machlokas of Yitzchak and Rivka. Rivka was looking in the world of action. Here's the bottom line of their behavior. We've never been called in the principal's office for Yaakov, and we're there every day for Esav. So Yaakov's the man. And Yitzchak says, not so fast, honey. Esav has such potential. Do you know who Esav is inside? Do you know who Esav is under the surface? Do you see the redeemable in him? Do you see the virtue in him that maybe no one else sees, that maybe he himself doesn't yet see? Chazal tells us, for example, that Esav excelled at what mitzvah? Kibar Ava'im. Kibar Ava'im, nobody like him. Amr Rav Shimon Gamliel, the Medjish Precious Rabbah, I've always shown great Kibar Ava'im and I never came one one hundredth close to the way Esav honored his father. So what, why didn't Rav Shimon Gamliel honor his father the same way? Rav Shimon Gamliel did He wasn't talking about the actual act of honoring his father. Rav Shimon Gamliel measured up in terms of the actual act of honoring his father, but rather lo igil madregas hakara gavoa kokach gam bemedrash on motzim. Esav is characterized, he is the role model. Esav is the one we still point to, who excelled not only in action, but in intent in Kibra Ve'em. In Kibra Ve'em, the Gro writes in his Haggadah, on Chagadja, the Gro writes on Chagadja in his Haggadah, in Lohaya Yaakov, Lokech has a brachos, Vayitzchak mevarach has Esav, if, Hash, if, Yaakov had, uh, if Yitzchak rather, had not in fact given the bracha to Yaakov, had Rivka not orchestrated that entire ruse that Yaakov received the bracha, had Yitzchak given the bracha to Esav as was originally intended, then the Shvatim, the 12 tribes, would have come from Esav. So Esav has redeemable. Esav has potential. Esav's head is buried in the Maras HaMachpelah. You know the story. Esav's head was cut off, it rolled in. Esav's head buried in Maras HaMachpelah. What does that mean? So the Chidar, Chaim Yosef David Azulai says that Esav was a very conflicted person. From his neck up, he was very righteous. From his neck up, he wanted to do the right thing and he had the right beliefs and he was driven by the right values. But from the neck down, he couldn't help himself. His guf, the world of taiva, the world of desire, temptation, he sabotaged everything about him. So his body couldn't make it into the Marasamachpela with the righteous, but his head made it in. His body couldn't make it in, but his head made it in. But his head made it in. So Rav Yerucham says, what was his downfall? You see this in the Pasuk. Ish ish sadeh. Says Rav Yerucham, the fact that he had to be a hunter, nobody could have a taina on him. He was hungry, he needed food, he wanted leather. He had to be a hunter. But he defined himself by that. You know, you can't complain that somebody works hard, they want to have a lot of money, they need to pay day school tuition, buy kosher food. The question is, does that define you? Do you confuse making a living and living? Esav defined himself by how he made a living. He confused making a living and living. He was an ish yodei tzayud. What made him an ish? What was his very identity? His character, his core, as opposed to Yaakov. How is Yaakov identified? What's his character? He's an ish. He's an ish tam yoshev o'alim. He also had to make a living, but he's defined by his learning. He's defined by sitting and learning. That's what he does. That's what he does. So Rabbi Yerucham says, don't oversimplify life. 
It's not that Yaakov is the archetype of Tzidkus and Esav is the archetype of wickedness. It's complex, it's complicated. There's potential. And our mission, our responsibility is to draw out. Our responsibility is to draw out. And we do that by how we define ourselves. We don't define our children. If we define them, we turn them into an Esav. You are the bad things that you do. We come home from that principal's office. Do we say to the child, why do you have to be such a bad boy? Why are you such a bad girl? Or do we say, you're an unbelievable boy, you're an unbelievable girl. Your potential, nobody believes in you as much as I believe in you. This is what's great about you and that's what's great about you. And I'm so proud of this and I'm so proud of that. But how could such a great boy and a great girl behave in such a way? What is our parenting? Do we lock them in the box? Do we define them? Do we label them that they can't break out from underneath it? They turn into an ace of. Do we say you're an Ishodeh This is who you are. You're the bad boy, the bad girl. You're the stubborn. Or you're the one who never helps. Or you're the one who always procrastinates. You're the one who always yells. You're the one who's always jealous. How do we define them? How do we define them? Or do we see the potential that's deep inside them? That's why, that's why it's suggested later that Yitzchak becomes so obsessed with digging wells. Why are you digging wells? Everything we learn about Yitzchak is passive. He was a passive participant in the Akedah. He was a passive participant in the wife being found for him. When do we find Yitzchak as this major active protagonist? We find him digging wells, redigging wells, digging wells, digging wells. What's the obsession with the wells? So a well, a well, when you have a pit, you dig a pit, and the rainwater fills the pit. A well reveals the water that was underground all along. When Hagar is expelled from the house of Avram, it says she opens her eyes, and she's dehydrated, she's thirsty, but she sees the well. The well was there all along. You have to open your eyes and find what's there all along. The idea of a well is the wellspring. There's water, there's there's virtue and there's value and there's that which is redeemable. It's there all along, the potential. But you have to reveal it. You have to expose it. You have to remove the cover to it so that it can be seen. That's a Yitzchak. Yitzchak lives in the world not of as is, but he lives in a world as he wishes and wants it to be. He sees the potential, so he believes in Esav. Rivka says, Esav, uh, look at the reality, look empirically, look at the data, look at who he is. And Yitzchak says, don't look at who he is, look at who he could be. There's a wellspring inside, there's a potential. Let's dig, let's uncover. It gets filled up, he gets sent to the principal's office, let's dig again, let's keep digging, let's not give up, let's continue to dig, let's keep digging. That is the attitude of a, of a Yitzchak. That's the attitude of a, of a Yitzchak. A very different approach altogether. Chaim Friedlander, the, the Menal, the Mashkiach of Ponovich, of Chaim Friedlander, he says, he says that the Torah describes Yaakov as in the Hove, in the, in the present tense. He's a Yoshev Oalim. Not somebody who sat in the tent. He didn't graduate from Yeshiva. He is Yoshev Ish. He's Yaakov Ishtam Yoshev Oalim. He sits in the tent. He continues to sit in the tent. And there's a very powerful lesson. A very powerful lesson. There's a book by Rav Lopiansky called Ben Torah for Life. If you haven't read it, you should. It's a fantastic book. Ben Torah for Life, Rav Lopiansky says that tragically many boys finish yeshiva. They're done with yeshiva or kolel. And now they're a balabas. They work. They're in the workforce. They're out there in the world. And they don't know how to transition. And they don't know how to bring 
the Ben Torah who they worked so hard to become into a life in which they now need to balance it with a family, with work. So they no longer find the time to learn Torah. They no longer make it to daven with a minion. They no longer strive to guard their eyes the way they once did when they were living aspirationally, spiritually. You have girls who in seminary are learning and growing and doing and volunteering. And then they get married and now I'm a, now I'm a balabasta. And now I'm just struggling to get by. So they're no longer spiritually aspirational. So he wrote a book called Ben Torah for Life. How do we bring the values and that aspiration that we don't graduate that mindset, but we bring it for life. I understand there's a yeshiva, you know, in some yeshivas, not all yeshivas, but in some yeshivas, the boys wear a white shirt, dark pants. It's the dress of a yeshiva boy. So there's one yeshiva I understand where they dafka want the boys and ask the boys to wear colored shirts while they're in yeshiva. Why? Because they say, if your whole life you wear a white shirt, and now you're going to go to work, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be an accountant, you're going to be in corporate America, you're going to be on Wall Street. And you're going to wear a blue shirt, another colored shirt, another shirt. You're going to have felt, you know what? When I dressed like the Ben Torah, I was the Ben Torah. But now I put on the uniform of the Balabas, I became a Balabas. But if you realize that even when I wear the blue shirt, I'm still a Ben Torah. In Yeshiva, I'm a Ben Aliyah in the blue shirt. Then when you graduate and you wear the blue shirt, you're going to be a Ben Aliyah for life. Not that the color shirt you wear has any impact on what level of righteousness you are. I'm not saying that. But it's an interesting worldview and philosophy. So it says of Chaim Friedlander, Yaakov is an Ish Yoshev, Ohalim. He is not Yashav. He didn't sit. He wasn't a Ben Torah when he was in Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever. He's a Ben Torah for life. He's the original Ben Torah for life. He's Yoshev Ohalim. Wherever he is and whatever he's doing, he's still in Yeshiva. The mindset of Yeshiva, the attitude of Yeshiva, the vigilance of Yeshiva, the aspiration of Yeshiva. He's Yoshev Oalim, not in the past tense, but in the present tense. He doesn't give up. He is continuing and continuing for life. We mentioned previously, he's Yoshev, not Ohel. He didn't learn in one Yeshiva. Oh, I should have mentioned this Sunday night when I spoke about the Sharakolo on this podcast. And I spoke about this vision of not locking ourselves into some narrow worldview in Torah, but the kaleidoscope, the par- have the have the panoramic view of Torah world and draw from the best of it. I'm an Ashkenazi and a Svardi, I'm a Hasidish and a Litvish. I'm all wrapped in one. I'm a modern and a Zion. I'm all wrapped in one. I'm a Yekka and a Tzion. I'm all wrapped in one. A panoramic view of Yiddishkeit. Draw from the Shivan Panam Torah. So note that Yaakov was not Yoshev Ohel. He didn't say, I learned in this yeshiva. This is the only Rosh Yeshiva I quote. I learned in this yeshiva. This is the only correct Hashkafa in life. Yaakov's Yoshev Ohalim. I have to ask him to have me back on. Such a great Yoshev Ohalim. Not one tent. He sits in many tents. He learns many libraries. He exposes himself to many influences of Rebbe Rosh Yeshivas. He learns from many, many diverse and different places. Back to the Kotzker. Right, we're in such trouble. We barely scratched the surface of what we wanted to get done. Back to the Kotzker. Esav is described as Kitsayed Befiv. Perachafei Pasuk Chaf Ches. Yitzchak loves Esav. Vayev Yitzchak is Esav. Kitsayed Befiv. What is the driver of why Yitzchak loves Esav? Kitsayed Befiv. Because he's got Tsayed Befiv. How do you translate those words? Game was in his mouth. Tsayed. Hunting was in his mouth. But Rivko, Heaven says Yaakov. Or Rivko loves Yaakov. Esav is drawn to, to uh, Yitzchak is drawn to Esav. Hainu, says the Kotzker, Rak Befiv Velo Belev. Where was this Tsayed for Esav? However you define Tsayed, we'll say in a moment, where was it? It was Befiv, it was in his mouth. Velo Belev, not in his heart. Vezo Gabkena Perish, and that is the understanding of the Gemara Navodah Zara. The Gemara Navodah Zara says, 
Isaifa lo safra. Isafra lo saifa. What is safra? The book. And what is saifa? The sword. The Gemara sets it up as either or. If you're the sword, you're not the book. If you're the book, you're not the sword. So the Kutzker makes this very cryptic allusion to the Gemara Navazara and says that side of Esav was in his mouth, in his mouth, not in his heart, and that's what the Gemara means. A sword that divides between the head and the heart is not the book. What's he talking about? So, the Sachachavah, the Egle Tau, Sachachavah Rebbe, the author of the uh, Egle Tau, of Bornstein, so he explains the following. To be cut from the world of Kotsk. You could be exposed to and you could learn, you could watch and you could listen and you can get WhatsApp one minute videos of the most inspirational things in the world. But it'll remain just in your head. It remains intellectual. It remains academic. It remains theoretical. How many people, he says, among the nations of the world, but it's true among the Jewish people. We know things to be true in our head, but it never filters or flows down to our heart. So we claim to want, we want to want, we say we're inspired, we have a certain vision of who we can be, but it doesn't ever become a reality. Even the person who knows intellectually that the taiva of this world is corruptive, it remains in the head. And the heart is not moved. Nothing penetrates. Nothing cracks or breaks it open. And we know that our action is dependent not on our head, but on our heart. The Torah, Torah has the secret sauce. The Torah has this incredible power that when you learn it, it filters down. It doesn't just, it's not just downloaded intellectually to your head, it transforms you in your heart. Death by sword, Saif, one of the Arba Misas based in, is to have your head cut off. Not literally what they did, but the image of a sword is for one's head to be cut off. Why is the punishment of having violated certain egregious mistakes for your head to be cut off? Says the Sachachavar from the world of Kotsk. What caused you to make that mistake? Because maybe you knew the right thing in your head, it never came down to your heart. So what's your punishment? we detach your head from your heart. If you live life with your head separate and apart from your heart, then your punishment is pretty gruesome, but we detach your head from your heart, decapitated. There are people walking around who are decapitated even while they're alive. Their head and their heart have never met. They never communicate. They never filter down. This is why we say, we quote Naleinu, Know today that there's a God. Know what's right. Know what you're meant to do. And where should you put this knowledge? El levavecha. Because otherwise you're living a decapitated existence. This is why you're not allowed to talk between the head tefillin and the arm tefillin. You can't be decapitated even while you're in this world. Esav lived decapitated. 
So his head is in Maras HaMachpela, the rest of him couldn't be in there. And that's what cryptically the Kotzker was saying. If you see someone who's living without their head and their heart communicating, you see someone living as if they're decapitated even while they're alive, it's a raya that lo safra, shalolamad b'Torah. Vi safra, if they learn Torah, imtira adam shoket al dalsei Torah basmada, somebody who's steeped in the values, the learning of Torah, teda de lo saifa. This is a person who's not decapitated. They're not dying by the sword. Their head and their heart are in constant communication, high speed. Kiskulas ha-Torah l'misha osig ba yehalev meir al-aguf l'isnaik pu'ulosav. So says, from the world of Kotsk, that that's what the Kotsk Rebbe meant, Saif and Safra. Do we live a decapitated existence or our head and our heart speaking to one another? Esav is an Ishiodeh a characterized, and this is the sum total of who he was. Maybe in theory he was righteous. Maybe Yitzchak was right to see the potential, but it wasn't actualized and it didn't come out into the reality. We're about a third of the way of what I wanted to share. So many other fantastic ideas. Let's just share very quickly along the same theme in the same Pasuk. So why didn't, why didn't Rivka throw Esav out of the house? If if we're supposed to follow what we saw earlier, what did Sarah do when Yishmael misbehaved and Sarah was threatened that her Yitzchak, her pure tzaddik, was going to become corrupted by Yishmael? What did she do? Throw him out of the house. So why didn't Rivka say, Esav's got to go? Esav's got to go. Maisa avasim labanim. We learned from those who came before. Why doesn't she say, got to go? So I just got this new sefer this week called Magid Yosef. I got it by the author. The author is Rav Yosef Yehuda Leib Sarotskin, Shlita. Rav in Telstone today, a Sarotskin, his uh, son and their family just moved to our community. He was visiting his son and he brought me his his farm. Beautiful. Magid Yosef. Sarotskin from Yeshiva's Tells, Telstone. So he says the following. Why didn't Rivka learn from Sarah and expel Asa from the house? There's a fundamental difference between them. This is the obvious dif- distinction. Sarah was the stepmother of Yishmael. So it's easy for her to say, get Yishmael out. But Rivka is the mother of Esav. And a mother... Mother never gives up on a child. As much as she chose Yitzchak, uh, Yaakov over Esav, she never gave up on Esav. She never gave up on Esav. So that would be the easy answer to give. Also, when they were in their youth, it wasn't obvious. Remember, the Pesach says, It was only when they grew up that they were differentiated. Also, And once they were grown up, there's not the same influence one on the other. So that's the second answer. Or maybe you can answer based on inside the briskar Remember what Hashem said. You're so concerned. You feel the kicking. It's two nations. You're going to have twins. And don't worry. From your womb, they will separate. So she thought, one will not have an influence on the other. Even while they were in the womb, there are two separate distinct nations even within the womb. So you don't have to worry. Or maybe you could say the reason Rivka wasn't worried was why? 
Where was Yaakov found all day? In a place, of, a place that Esav never visited. Yaakov sat, burning the midnight oil, midnight candle, in the base medrash. He was Yoshev Oalim. No worry. Esav wasn't going to go into the base medrash to have a negative influence on him. Reason number three. And then he gives five more possibilities. Esav was Makbar and Kibar Aim. So maybe there was still hope for him. Sarah had no hope for Yishmal, but maybe Rivka still had hope for Esav because she saw his, his Kibar Aim. Or maybe Rivka never told Yitzchak about his rishas. It's unclear the pillow talk between Rivka and Yitzchak here. In this parsha, next parsha, unclear what they spoke about in terms of what they saw in their children and their hope for their children. Also, Rivka knew in Ruach Hakodesh that Esav was going to sell the bechorah to Yaakov. If she would expel him, then that would have never happened, and Yaakov wouldn't have received the brachas. And also, Esav is like a Esav was duplicitous, but at least he put forth like he was living like a righteous. Yishmol never did that. He has several beautiful reasons. I had many, many more ideas I wanted to share about the redigging of the wells. I wanted to get to at the end of the parsha. I'll just give you a little uh, teaser for next year, Parsha's Toldos. We have three psukim. When the brachas, in the episode of stealing the brachas, three psukim that describe Esav b'noha gadol and Yaakov is b'noha katan. We're talking about grown men. And we're still talking about the older and the younger the big brother and the little brother. And we don't do it anywhere else, in all of Chumash and all of Tanakh, only in these three Pesukim. Perach of Zion, Pasuk Aleph, Tezvav, and Membez. In this Perach, Chav Zion, three times in Perach of Zion, Esav is the Gadol, the older brother, and Yaakov is the Katan, the younger brother. Why specifically in that story are we invoking Gadol and Katan? There's a Ramban, an Atziv, and an amazing insight of Rav Schwab, but you have to come back next year. In order to hear them, Rav Schwab, or you can look them up yourself. A beautiful, beautiful insight. Join us tomorrow morning, 10 minutes of meaning, living with Amuna. Tomorrow night, we're going behind the Bima with the Chief Rabbi of Israel, Rav David Lau. Have a fantastic day. Stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.